Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Some Mail to Read on this podcast today. Which was the original title. We shortened it to We've Got yeah. Mail. Yeah. Uh, I remember in uh, Dr. Katz, there was a guy who claimed he had uh, written the uh, the phrase uh, in you know in real estate that's location, location, location. Uh-huh. But his first draft was location, 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 and then he shortened it. Yeah. My name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I too am a critic. Uh, you can call me Rockmeister McCool for this particular email. You needn't. You may. Most people do. Again, if someone gives you that opening. I suppose so. You do it. Or, uh, or you can just call me Whitney. That's that, that also works. This is our Letters Podcast. You write in, we read your emails, we answer your questions, we respond to your criticisms, we explain things about the industry, or give you our opinions on film history, or recommendations for things. Uh, sometimes we invite our listeners to uh, present their own picks for things, or their own... Uh, 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 to answer various questions that we pose throughout uh, our various podcasts. Uh, we haven't actually done one of these in a couple of weeks. It's been kind of just a scheduling thing. Oh, well, I, I was out of town for a yeah. little bit, so I apologize for that. Um, I was on vacation. Don't, don't apologize was, for being on vacation. Yeah, summer summer vacation. I, yeah. I, my family and I took a trip, so I was out of town. We couldn't record for a couple days. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so we're back. We're back uh, with, yeah. in full force, and it seems that we got a letter in our P.O. box. Right. So we always start with letters in our P.O. box. Real fast, if you want to email us, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. However, if you want to pretty much guarantee we're going to read your email, or you're going to read your correspondence, rather, mm. uh, you can send us a physical letter to our P.O. Box. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, it's, uh, send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. All right, let's get started. And we got something in our night. Uh, and I like to crinkle the paper so you know that it actually came yeah, in the we're, mail. We're, we're doing this for realsies. And, uh, oh, there's, there's a lot of paper in here. Ooh. There's two letters in here. Oh, my, fancy. One is in longhand and one is typed out. I wonder, is there a, uh, something to tell us what the... Uh, there's a note on the handwritten letter that just says, read the typed one. So okay. I'm going to read the typed one. I guess we'll, we'll read this uh, handwritten one uh, in, Privately. in yeah. private. But, uh... It begins, Gentlemen, I hope this finds you both well. First, I would like to say I hand-wrote a letter in haste after listening to your Iron List on soundtracks, but quickly realized I couldn't put Whitney through the impossible task that would be reading my handwriting, and that a few of my choices I might not have put enough thought into. I may include I, the I'm going hand- to interrupt you right here. The handwriting's fine. It, it looks very nice, clear actually. to me. Yeah, yeah it's and, actually really good. Yeah, so anyway, just uh, for, you worried too much, but un- I appreciate Unless I'm, you. like, notorious for misreading letters, which I uh, always appreciate. I, do, but, uh, I always appreciate a little redundancy for the case of just wanting yeah. to make sure you get it right. I get it, but your handwriting is great, so don't worry about uh, it. I may include the handwritten version just for you soon, but there's no need to read it. Before I get started on my top ten movie soundtracks of all time, I feel like I should explain who I who I am some, give some context to my choices, and that may not be necessary, but I feel like it helps. I know you two from the... MTS and listening to the podcast for a couple of years now. MTS, the movie trivia showdown. The movie trivia showdown yeah. uh, for a couple of years now. So I feel like uh, you should sort of know who I am. My name is Shelby. I'm about to be 39. Congrats. Happy, happy birthday. I've seen approximately 1,700 movies. Thank you, Letterboxd. Wow. I consider myself a movie buff for someone who grew up in Kentucky. Uh, lastly, I even had the pleasure of working in an old-school movie rental store. Ooh. And it was a local, no-chain, nothing-like-stocking-a-porn-room-before-you-can-rent-it R.I.P. movie warehouse. Oh, it's now a Walgreens, which is very depressing for me. But I digress, uh, which is uh, part of why I like your shows, the tangents on which I learn so much. <laughs> I will start in reverse by saying my number one all-time 
all-time favorite soundtrack is from Train Spotting. So when soundtrack. Bibbs mentioned it and then Whitney doubled down on knowing it had multiple versions, I knew I had to write in. I won't go too long as you know you know the soundtrack is everything, but I even have Perfect Day lyrics tattooed on my foot. Wow. Uh, I will say this movie is one of my all-time favorite movies as well. Bibbs, I had that same poster on my wall that you spoke of it to a previous listener letter questions. I actually had three train spotting posters. Wow. I uh, saw the movie for the first time at my freshman year of high school when my older brother worked at the movie store, but I didn't yet and it changed my life. Uh, real fast, in case, in case people don't remember, we had our episode of The Iron List, where we, uh, it was last month, where we talked about the best soundtracks ever, at least our picks. We talked a little bit about the train spotting soundtrack, and I mentioned that I had a train spotting poster that was literally just the opening monologue. Choose life, choose mm. a job, choose a career. Uh, that was the whole poster. And I oh. had that in my college dorm room. And I guess I wasn't the only one, and that makes me feel nice. Nice, yeah. Um, I saw Trainspotting uh, its opening weekend. So I was working in a mo- movie theater that week, and we had like an early morning staff meeting that started at like 6.30 a.m. Oh, I hate Cause, it. Because you had that. to do it before the first show of the day, and yeah. the first show was like 9, so you had to have this big long meeting. Before and everyone has that. to go in even if they're not working that day. Yeah, So oh, and I wasn't working that sure. day, so I had to go in, I had to do this thing, and I got out in time for the first show of the day at the theater across the street, because this was in mm. like a mall area, multiple theaters. I knew nothing about this movie, Train Spotting. All it said, uh, the comedy smash from Britain. Oh, I was like, oh, well, oh, hey. and I was oh. expecting something like really like Monty or, ma- mannered yeah. or something really absurd, like Monty Python. It's like, oh, this is going to be great. Oh, wait, what is? Whoa. <laughs> took me a while to get my bearings like it's like, kind of funny sometimes it's, 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 it's calling not, it a comedy is a it's not bit like of a stretch comedy smash though <laughs> i wasn't really sure what i was getting into with train spotting uh bibbs also spoke about one of his uh how one of his favorites was not even actually released as a true soundtrack and i have one of those two mm. mole rats did they was, not really put that as a soundtrack? I guess not. Um, huh. I was a Kevin Smith junkie as a teenager, and I had the Clerks soundtrack, which is amazing on its own, but I wish that I had uh, that Mallrats one endlessly. Whitney, say anything. No need to say any more. When you mentioned how well curated it is, you hit hit it on the head, and it's iconic. Plus, who doesn't love Lloyd Dobbs? Uh, Lloyd, Lloyd Dobbler. Lloyd Dobbler. Lloyd Dobbs, he says. Yeah. Uh, Lloyd Dobbs, but you know why we love him. Love his, his love of music and his part... Oh, sorry, let me get this part. Wait, His I, love of music is part of it, and it's so well expressed in the film. Sorry, the lighting uh, is a little low in my part. Yeah, sorry. Right sorry about that. Uh, so this one uh, I have gone around and around on. I think we all have an affinity for a good 70s soundtrack. Mm. First I thought Dazed and Confused, but then I went to the lesser known Outside Providence. That's a good soundtrack. And even considered Blow. Oh, the okay. 2001 movie. Uh, but went back, and it's got to be dazed and confused. Uh, I cannot hear sweet emotion without seeing the cars pulling into the parking lot of the high school. That's what solidifies it for me. And when I hear a song uh, but see a scene, you know it was the right choice. I'm a huge Disney person. Mm-hmm. Uh, due to my age, you weren't growing up without it ingrained in your life in some way, but I love it. I've seen them all a ton, but do not despair. I have chosen bed knobs and broomsticks. Mm-hmm. I know you two... Uh, I, know how much, I know you two how much you like Portobello... I know you know how much Portobello Road slaps, but so should the whole world. Angela Lansbury was an icon, and she sings and she dances her ass off as a badass witch saving all of Great Britain. I mean uh, the last song with the nonsense words, but I bet we can all say right now that if I'm going to Google it to write in, it's so funny and unique and catchy. Yeah, I love Bedknobs and Broomsticks a lot. Uh, uh, we, I think we both kind of vetoed that because we wanted to do musicals another time. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of a musical. So. Mu- musical soundtracks. Yeah, we just sort of that could be a whole other episode. That yeah. could be a whole other episode. Uh, so we decided let's let that be a whole other episode. Mm-hmm. Save that for another day. Same thing with yeah. orchestral scores. We didn't include those either. Yeah, that could well, also totally we could be do another. a different list. Of yeah. That oh god, can I, I'd need uh, more than ten for that. That's that's a huge for topic. orchestral scores. Oh my god, ridiculous. <laughs> um, Adventurelands. As another oh, yeah. fun soundtrack yeah. that fits the feel of the movie so perfectly, plus more Lou Reed, Bowie, and Excess. It's got silly longs, silly songs, excuse me, that play like "Rock, rock Me Amadeus," and uh, that play at the theme park. But then you get the songs that he puts on the mixtape, like "Play a Blue, Pale Blue Eyes" from Velvet Underground. Mm. It's got range, and I like that. Speaking of an excess, the next one is odd. I picked Donnie Darko. Okay. But the song that is my favorite from the soundtrack actually only appears in the director's cut of the film. Mm. Imagine my utter disappointment the first time I caught the movie on TV somehow, and it was a different song over the scene where they enter the school for the first time, and it changes the entire feel. This movie is odd, but the music is fitting. There isn't a lot to the soundtrack, but it just sticks with me for some reason. Mm, fair enough. Uh, you spoke on Tarantino films, and I agree uh, with your sentiments on Reservoir, the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack. It's my personal favorite film of his. But as for uh, the favorite soundtrack, I'm leaning towards Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That end scene, well towards the end, with Pitt's character, and he's playing Vanilla Fudge on the stereo. I just love it. Plus, it has a lot to s- a lot of those silly Tarant- Tarantino-style commercials in it. I feel like I'll, that's a lot of the movie. I don't know if I like the soundtrack a bit better than the film. Hmm. Uh, oh, this is a good choice. Uh, Belly. Uh, oh, that's this, a great choice. This, this movie Shit. stars Nas and DMX. Yeah. So that should tell you a little bit about the music. It represents a section of the late 90s where you had to be there to get to know uh, that this movie was a thing. But it was, and I love it, and I love the soundtrack. If you haven't seen it, I'd say it's worth a watch. I think I, Belly is overdue for a rediscovery. Yeah. yeah so that like, movie it's, was It's still huge. like way off on the fringe the, who, who of directed like, the that conversation. Who directed that Oh, I forgot who directed Belly. Oh, God, because was it... Hold on a second. I'm going to look it up. I want to make sure, because I don't think they ever directed another movie. I, I know. Uh, I think they were like a music video director. Yeah, it was Hype yeah. Williams. I wanted to say Hype Williams. I should have been more confident. Right. Yeah, Hype Williams. Like People just went absolutely apeshit for that film. Yeah, I remember when it came so out. so fucking stylish. And yeah, and like uh, just never did another film. I know it's of its time, even if it's dated, every song fits each, each moment in the movie like a glove. And my final soundtrack is for Sing... Uh, I don't know if it counts, but there's an audition scene in that movie where they have different animals singing different well-known pop songs, and that bit alone makes the movie good, but there are a lot of other good covers here and a decent amount of original songs as well. This movie's pure fun, and I thought it was going to be annoying even even after I have seen it upwards of 30 times because of my kids, and I still enjoy the music aspect. And honorable mention is Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Yeah. But you all spoke at length on that, so I don't need to. And if I was to pick a song that was my favorite from the movie soundtrack, uh, but wasn't strong enough overall, I would pick "Don't Forget About Don't Forget About Me" by Simple Minds. Yes. from The Breakfast Club. Great song. So now that I have rambled on for nearly two typed pages, my <laughs> one question is: What's the song that you really associate with a movie, but maybe don't overall connect to the soundtrack? Thanks for taking the time to indulge me, talking about movies and music. And thank you for the content you provide. Oh, and Bibbs, I just watched Influencer last night. That movie is so good. Everyone should see it. Thanks for covering it a couple weeks ago. Oh, I'm glad Signed you liked Shelby. it. Signed Shelby. Yeah, that one kind of came and went, and I just thought it was really taut and excellently crafted. So I'm yeah. glad people are watching it. Uh, that's on Shudder, by the way, if you haven't seen it. Just great Hitchcockian thriller. Um, that's an interesting question. A mm. song that you connect to, even if you don't necessarily like the rest of the soundtrack. Or, like, the, or the song works yeah. very necessarily into the rest of the That's interesting. I don't know mm. if I've ever really thought about it like that. Um, let's see, there's there's a few like good music cues I can think of from movies yeah. that like just I, I associate with those films. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not very fond of David Fincher's version of the girl with the dragon tattoo, mm-hmm. but uh, there's a rather ingenious use of Orinoco flow uh-huh. in that movie. Oh, um, I would even just say the uh, uh, the cover of uh, Immigrant Song at the beginning. That's a good one. It too, really yeah. kills. Like I love how like. I don't like that it's, version it's little, of the movie. It's a little either. obvious because it takes place in Norway and it starts, yeah. I come from the land of ice and snow. True, true. But I, what I like about that is, and I, this is actually the only thing I like about Fincher's version more than the original version with Nomi Rapace, which I think is just a better, mm. pulpier, more exciting movie. Yeah. Um, that opening sequence treats Lizbeth Salander like James Bond. Yeah. Like, we get this fucking awesome Just anthem like a, of a song. We get this really high concept. Oil people yeah. that are kind of, like, morphing into each yeah, other in this James Bondy it, kind of a way. Seriously, yeah. you just change the credits for that to be... Like, if that was the, the opening credit sequence for Quantum of Solace, we'd all mm. go, that's a great Bond opening. <laughs> so that's I, I that's a perfect example. I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can do better than that. Shit. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm trying to think of other movies maybe like I didn't a, really care for. I, I like, like in it, but I don't music. care for like the rest of the soundtrack. Um, yeah, I don't even care for the rest of the movie, even, really. I'm trying to think of movies like movies I didn't care for, but damn it, that was a good song. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> I try not to think about movies I don't like. Yeah, no. if, 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 <laughs> you'll notice if you watch the movie trivia showdown, I always bomb out on the movies I hate. Cause, yeah. Like, I don't, keep those facts in my brain about yeah, the movies I don't like. You're actively trying to it's shove like, yeah, them out. I just don't, don't want to keep that stuff. Yeah, I'm just thinking of all the movies I despised. <laughs> what a... Uh, uh, well, I'll, okay, I'll say... I'll say you know, here, here you go. You, you mm. mentioned James Bond. Uh, every James Bond movie has a song. At I, least I one. Stop, yeah. Like a pop, a pop song right over the credits. Yeah. Uh, the pop song has nothing to do with the quality of the movie. You might like yeah. love the song and hate the movie and vice versa. Uh, oftentimes um, they're inversely proportional. Yeah. Um, yeah. A View to a Kill mm-hmm. is a terrible movie. Like, it is just forthrightly bad. <laughs> also, the title doesn't make any sense. No, not at all. That's Most, a, a lot of the titles don't make any yeah, sense. It's quite a view. They, but they say it in the movie and it doesn't make any sense. That's quite a view, someone says. And the bad guy says, yes, A View to a Kill. What? What does that mean? I love every uh, every action movie with a weird title needs that. Like, uh, there's a Steven Seagal movie called Half Pest Dead, uh, and I kept waiting for someone to be like, "Hey, Steven, what time is what it? What time is it?" It's like it's half past dead. Snap! And he like breaks your neck, <laughs> like Kill, what? Kills, you, kills you with a wristwatch. Um, yeah. No, but Duran Duran's song "Vito a Kill," like dance into the fire. fire. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, awesome fucking song. Uh, like it's it's a it's, pop it's, song good enough to just sort of stand outside of the James Bond. Camp. It was a hit song. Yeah, it was yeah. legitimately a hit song. I, and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say something, and this might be this might be revealing too much. I actually like a View to a Kill. You can have it because it's fine. my philosophy about James Bond is that James Bond is uh, it's one of the things I like about Star Trek, for example. I said this before mm. is that it can be anything. It can be serious. It can be silly. It can uh-huh. be high concept. It can be character driven, and I think that's true for James Bond. And I think there are good serious Bond movies and bad serious Bond movies. Yes. And I think there are good silly, Bond che- movies, yes, yeah. silly cheesy Bond movies, and there are bad silly cheesy Bond movies. And I consider View to a Kill a very enjoyable cheesy silly Bond movie. Okay. And certainly it helps that Christopher Walken. And Grace, Grace Jones, Jones yeah. are having the time of their lives in that film. I, I wish I was having as much fun as they were. <laughs> it's yeah. a, I think, watch it again sometime. I think you'll have a better time. No. It's fun. <laughs> I've seen it twice. I'm, I'm good. All right, fine. 
My limit yeah. for bad movies, like mm. how many times I will watch them over and over again mm. because people keep telling me you're missing something, you should yeah. watch them this angle, is, and this is way too generous, five. F- five? Across my whole lifetime. Okay. I have... Like over the years. Over, over the years. years. I have okay. sat through Event Horizon five times, mm-hmm. and I know a lot of people love that movie. Mm. I gave it five chances. <laughs> I'm done. I don't care for the film. It's good production design and a wasted cast. I, I would say, with a, like a movie you you dislike first time, yeah, maybe you're in a bad state of mind that day. You, sure. wait, you wait, yeah, you give it a chance. You, you wait a year, maybe. People like, say it's, cool people say it's better bit. than you. Yeah. People you like like yeah. the movie, so like okay, I'll give it a chance. Sometime. Yeah, you want yeah, watch it again. I knew some it, people it, who defended the Lone Ranger, the okay, Korverbetsky yeah. film, and I was like, okay, I'll give it another chance. I liked it a little better because I at least yeah, appreciated think, there's uh, some there's some technical wizardry, but I still don't think it's good. I think a good rule of thumb: wait a decade, wait ten yeah. years. Yeah, because you change. Again. Yeah, you've changed a little. Even bit. Even if the movie yeah. doesn't, you change. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you give it a decade, watch it again, see if it still strikes you in yeah. the same way. But on a long enough timeline, how many chances do you give the movie? My limit is five. Uh, two. I'll give yeah. it two. I, 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 well, I keep... If I watch it, I wait a decade and I watch it again, it's bad in the same way, then I've, I've kind of come to a conclusion on to it. To be fair, we're professional critics and it comes up a lot. That's true. Yeah, you know, so I've, I've watched Batman v Superman five times. I'm done. I get, you you used them all up right away. I watched it. I didn't care for it. Everyone said, you missed the point. I watched it again. I did not care for it. Everyone said, oh, but the Ultimate Edition's better. I did not care for it. I think it still had a lot of the same problems. And everyone's like, you missed the point, so fine. I'll watch it again. We, we did uh, with John Pavlik. That was my an, last an entire, one. That was my uh, five. We did an entire commentary track for yeah. the extended version, the three-hour cut of Batman vs. Superman. That was my and, fifth time watching uh, it, and I was that was that was it. I'm done. I'm good. Yeah, I, you used uh, them all up. Uh, and that I, was could, my, I was happy to give it another chance in ten years. Nope, you used it up. And that was my third take because I saw the theatrical cut, and mm-hmm. then I saw the extended cut, and then for the commentary track, I, I saw it again. So yeah. that's I'm, I've, I was done. Done, I was done with that like a third of the way through my third viewing. Yeah, it's like I'm, I'm finished with this. Anyway, we should we should move anymore. on. But thank you for the wonderful yeah, yeah. letter. Uh, let's move to some emails, sure. uh, because that was our only letter in the uh, uh, yeah. mailbox. Yeah, I checked. Uh, here, here's a letter from Justin. Hello, Justin. Hey, Justin. Uh, starts, fellas, uh, Baltimore is lucky to have two very good independent theaters with long histories that I would like to tell you about. Uh, ooh, I, I was uh, really close to Baltimore just now. I visited Washington, oh, yeah. D.C. Um, I don't think I've ever been to Baltimore, actually. I've always I wanted to go. I have been to Baltimore. And I, yeah. The only reason I want to go is to go on like a John Waters tour. Yeah. Just I'm a John Waters fan. Sure. Uh, first of all, I have a grudge against a particular chain because their entrance was very confusing. And when I walked in, I had a bright, splitting gobbo shine directly into my eye, temporarily blinding me and making their exciting lobby movie premiere experience even more awful. I think it's actually pronounced yeah. a gobo. Gobo? I think it's what the light's called. G-O-B-O, okay. Yeah. Uh, more my speed is the Charles Theater, right in the middle of Baltimore. Uh, it started out as a one screen, and I saw many small release independent movies and film festivals in the 90s. I was informed by the Mike Spike and Mike film festivals and weird stuff like Pi that didn't make other theaters. Now they have several smaller screens and are dedicated, just as dedicated to independent productions and revivals. Across the street is a wonderful dive bar, which used to be a regular spot to see John Waters hanging out. Wow. Uh, I know John Waters has spoken very openly about the dive bars he likes to hang out in Baltimore. He doesn't like to go to the mainstream places. <sighs> um, <Jealous. laughs> uh, the other notable theater is The Senator. It's a grand old I've heard movie of this house. One, yeah. I think the. The Senator might be the one from Cecil B. Demented. I think it's in there, yeah. yeah I could uh, be wrong, but I think it's in there. 
Uh, it's a grand old movie house with neon and art deco details that has hosted many premieres, including a puppet rock opera I directed part of. Hey! And the sidewalk is marked with the hands and f- hands and footprints. Inside there is a soundproof box seats to rent for parties and a screen that used to be uh, used to be a reference theater because the speaker system behind it was the best example of that setup. They occasionally had concerts there, so I saw Dr. Demento and Squeeze there. Wow. The economic model of having just one screen didn't work very well in the 2000s, and after many a Save the Theater campaigns, a new owner set up some smaller screens and has been doing very well uh, with an attached poutine and burger restaurant wow. that does themed boozy milkshakes to go with our current marquee. Oh, that's I want to do all of that. That sounds great. <laughs> they also have a wonderful revival series on Saturday mornings. Me and my partner saw My Neighbor Totoro there with our friends and their kids. Seeing that movie with kids is the best possible experience. Yeah, it's great. First of all, kids do not sit down. They pop, <laughs> they pop up like prairie dogs. The first time something exciting happens and a much more kinesthetic relationship to what's happening on the screen. Now, the uh, now in the last Only the Best, you, Mr. Bibiani, said that you would n- you have never found delight in a clown whose umbrella was too small to keep them dry. <laughs> <laughs> we reviewed uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, where, where oh, uh, yeah. James Stewart plays a clown, and there's a sequence with a bunch of little kids watching the clowns, mm-hmm. and there's a clown, with the gag is that there's, it's raining, and the clown's getting wet, and the clown has an umbrella, and oh, the umbrella's it. too small, mm-hmm. and the kids are just like, that umbrella's too small! And I'm like, Yes. That's the joke. Mm. Are we good now? I'm sorry you have no joy in your soul. I have joy. I just have taste. That's true. Cl- okay. cl- clowns... Not funny? Like, I didn't can, find them amusing I can appreciate the artistry behind clownery. Mm. Uh, but I there, there are certain bits that I think uh, we, we it's time to move on from. And I yeah. think the too small umbrella is one of them. Perhaps I'm about to be uh, right, well, I'm about to learn a lesson. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, d- 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 clown that was too, yeah. umbrella too small to keep them dry. A kid at the screening of My Neighbor Totoro stood up, stood up and exclaimed in delight that Totoro's umbrella mm-hmm. was in fact too small. Mm-hmm. And damn it, I can't let you take that wonder... <laughs> in the world away from that child with your bitterness <laughs> i know you can't compare totoro to the greatest show on earth uh-huh. me and my partner still reference that astute observation from the kid who had the courage to say what we were all thinking <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna say this uh-huh. in in response to that totoro is not a clown ergo hmm. totally okay Maybe Totoro is a clown in no. sort of the classic theater sense. No. The, the buffoon character. I don't think he's a buffoon. He made that nice garden. He helped them deliver corn to their parents. Mm. He's a very effective yeah. dude. He ate those kids at the end. He ate those kids at the what? I, 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 I fell asleep a little bit. I, I got bored and imagined my own end. <laughs> I'm so, no, I actually love my neighbor Totoro. It's I'm one of the best movies ever made. I'm just kind of riven it a little just bit. Just flat out um, one of the best movies ever made. Anyway, thank you for all the uh, all the listeners for thank you and all the listeners for your time and attention. And I hope everyone has theaters that were as thoughtful that were as thoughtful and as formative as I have. Signed, Justin. Oh yeah, I have so many theaters that I just I loved as a kid, and they're not there anymore. I would kill to see one more movie at the Pacific in Pasadena. It had this gorgeous, gigantic screen, and rather than have like three different rows of like seats and there's like aisles in the middle it was just one giant fucking thing and if you wanted to sit at the left end you walked all the way over there 
and you had to against the walk. wall. Yeah. yeah, no, not against the wall. You had to walk through the people. It was kind of not very well designed, actually. Well, but it was this huge amphitheater. It's like uh-huh. you were watching, you know, gladiators fight. Like it was. That's the kind of seating scenario it had. It was gorgeous. Yeah, I saw yeah. all the Star Wars special editions there. Oh, I nice. saw uh, Thin Red Line there. I saw so many just giant epic movies in this kind of perfect movie theater. It was so lovely. Yeah, we, we, we've talked a lot about uh, the sad passing of the National in oh, Westwood. That's the best in uh, this part the, of town. The, Na- the National Theater... Uh, Actually, actually, watch uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. Yeah. They filmed uh, scenes yeah, at the National, like yeah. right before they tore it down. Too. Yeah, you you uh, bought your tickets on the first floor. You ascended stairs to the second floor, and it, it was, was that beautiful, disgustingly yeah. ugly shade of like nineteen seventies orange brown. Yeah, with like kind uh, of like which, a gold gilt that had mostly faded. And you would get your concessions, and there'd be like a line of posters, and then you walk inside, and it's just huge, and there's a giant. I miss curtains. I miss uh, when movie theaters had curtains. Yeah, you don't need them, but it was a level of showmanship yeah. that just was nice. There's a theater we have. Uh, is it is, is there still in Westwood? The, is it Pacific there as well? Which, well the, the the one on the one on Westwood Boulevard, right on, right below the uh, the Arm and Hammer Museum. Oh, you're thinking of the festival. The festival. That's it. And that one has like. A really pretty curtain, and they had like um, multiple curtain levels that go up every single time, or at least they did. Oh, I, I don't, I don't know if remember still, I the festival oh, had. Oh, a, yeah. very pretty, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's the big one with the balcony uh, is mm. the village. That's a really nice. There. That's nice. Right across the street is the Bruin. Um, the one, I, yeah, the one I really miss is the National. The other mm. one I really miss is uh, the Plaza. Which was like mm. a few streets over. Yeah, that was and nice too. It, it was. It had a balcony, but it was like a little theater. It was a little more rundown. It felt a little and bit more uh, like a grindhousey kind of theater. Yeah, yeah. and that, that was the one that had midnight shows. Yeah. And here's what I liked about their midnight programming: it was the usual kind of stuff. You know, a lot of cult hits. You know, your Monty Pythons, your Hellraisers. Uh, occasionally, they'd show something a little newer, like um, uh, at the time, like John Favreau's movies, like Swingers and Maid, were showing at uh, midnight, and. They would have their midnight shows on Friday nights, okay, Saturday nights, fine, but also Sunday nights, mm-hmm. which is great, because I worked nights. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd you know, get, out, get out of my job at like 10.30 at night, I could still go over to the plaza on Sunday night yeah. and see the midnight show. I, I, I feel bad for people who, uh, I, I mean, good, I'm glad people go to like, the film school at UCLA, which is right next to Westwood, uh, but when I went to UCLA film school, uh, Westwood Village, the whole just sort of general shopping area... In addition to having two video stores, Tower Records and Penny Lane, mm-hmm. there were, I just counted in my head, a minimum of 12 movie theater screens. Because um, there were four at the Avco, there was the National, yeah, the Festival, there was the other one like around the side that, that was kind that of was up. The, that was the plaza. That was the plaza. Yeah. Uh, there was the mini multiplex at what is the now quad. Whole Foods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was at least three or four. Uh, it, was four it was called the Quad. It was Quad, it was so four. It was four. Yeah. yeah, and then there was the three main theaters, which are still there. Mm. And then on top of that, they sometimes showed movies at the Arm & Hammer Museum, and yeah. they would show movies at UCLA proper. Mm-hmm. There were so many movies you could see on There's, the big screen within walking distance of each other. It was magic. Yeah, the, the the glory days of Westwood Village in the 1990s was, was pretty great. Or the early uh, 2000s. I think they really kind of petered out around the mid-2000s. Yeah, I, I remember there, there was this little diner you could go to, and it was vaguely affordable, called Headlines. Oh, that was, and, Headlines uh, yeah, was great, yeah. And, you know, one of those great old diners where they give you a big scoop of, like, ultra greasy french fries in that checkered pattern paper yeah. that came in those little plastic trays and you get a big big plate of fries you put it in the middle of your table you'd all share and 
bless them for doing this. This is pre, the best pre, thing pre, about this pre, place. Uh, pre smartphones was they had all of the movies and uh, all of the movie times of the day in Westwood uh, on a big chalkboard mm-hmm. up inside headlines. So you could go there, you'd get your fries, you'd look up at the chalkboard, and you'd debate which movie you'd want to see. Yeah, or at the very least, you could keep an eye on. Oh, mm. I wanted to go see. Bram Stoker's Dracula. I want to go see Bram Stoker's Dracula today. Uh, Oh, it's playing at three. What time is it now? Yeah, we have time for fries. Like, boom. Brilliant. They were so wonderful. So we have time. We have time to go to Penny Lane, pick up, uh, you know, some records, some cassettes, and yeah, and and then head on over to the theater. (laughs) I I know we're just being nostalgic and reminiscing at this point. Old things were nice when I was young. It it felt so much more social at the time. Yeah, because you had to go out to do these things. You had to go get a movie. Yeah, whether you wanted to watch it live or rent it, you had to leave the house. I remember you had to interact with people to get tickets and buy things. I read an interview with Seth Rogen recently and yeah. he uh, was a little he, he's a little younger than I am but he was disheartened by this uh, the phenomenon of, uh, of browsing being dead like yeah. he, didn't, he didn't like that people didn't browse he didn't go to yeah. a store and take sort of a little bit more of an active participation in what mm. you were choosing and also find something by accident yeah it seems like that was very rare right now it's all kind of algorithms pushing things at you and yeah you know what you're searching for you search for it and then they offer you similar things your odds of you just stumbling across something completely random and wanting to give it a chance Mm. as opposed to just flicking by without sort of a notice people just don't stumble into things the way they used to and that's that's something that's kind of stinks because you're not exposed to things that you didn't already know existed yeah, and I think yeah, that's not a. The, uh, I, I, that's a lot of things have improved. I'm not pretending everything was better 20 years ago or 30 years ago or whatever, but that's one thing that was an upside. Yeah, is that you could yeah. randomly encounter something you'd never heard of before, mm. you would never have been interested in before. They'd be and playing they, it on a screen at Tower Records, and you'd be like, "The hell is that?" And then you you have to buy it, and you mm. would get it in your hands, yeah. and you would treasure it because that was yeah. you owned that. That was special. Yeah, and also yeah. the fact that there's so much available now, yeah. like we're over entertained. There's just too much. That's an argument. Uh, yeah. um, and like I, I have lost my ability to rewatch movies. I just don't do it so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm stymied by the question. What's your comfort movie? Well, I don't have one. I don't rewatch movies. I just keep on rolling forward. That's my yeah. comfort movie. Uh, and uh, I feel like when there wasn't so much to choose from, when you didn't have infinity in your home, yeah. you could just choose any movie you wanted. Yeah, you had the you movies had, you had or what happened to be you, on TV. You have like a few videos, and those were the ones that you would kind of watch repeatedly. This yeah. is the afternoon I want to rewatch Police Academy 2. I don't know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And... Uh, I think as such, a lot of movies kind of latched onto the mass consciousness in a bigger way yeah. because a lot more people are kind of rewatching these movies and getting to know them a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. or, or at the, or they're simply being brought home, being watched in sort of, this is the one I have. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take some special time to watch this yeah. one film. Or and then on we only have it for a few days. So it's a window. Yeah, we so have I'm, to make the time on other side of it. There's, you're not watching stuff. Yeah. Uh, and now it feels like, oh, well, I can watch a whole season of TV in an evening, and tomorrow I'll watch another whole season of TV. It's like your fa- your brain is too full. I was uh, I was watching a video, recent video, from Ben Yahtzee Croshaw, uh, oh, who yeah. is uh, who a, was video a video game, game critic. critic yeah. uh, and he's a very astute video game critic. His sense of humor is sometimes, I think, I think he's tasteless in order to attract, like, Attention from people who might not normally actually mm. listen to serious criticism, and he, I think he can be a little raw, yeah. I think sometimes he miscalculates what's funny, and so I can't defend all of his jokes. But I think his acumen is 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 spot on a lot of the time. And he was talking about um, how 
uh, a lot of video game companies are actually moving away from physical media and you can only download. Mm -hmm. And there are downsides to that. And he was talking about how to physically own something, to actually to have it, uh, is a slightly different thing than to rent or stream it. Mm. To care about a work of art enough that you want to have it on you at all times. That's a that's a different level of audience commitment than it is to just, eh, it's, it'll always be on streaming. You know, that's something you treasure. And I think acknowledging that I think there's a difference. And a lot of people like save physical media, and I think we should. Mm. Some people like, I don't get why that, that matters. And I think that's why it matters. Because I think, yeah, you're not going to own everything. Mm. But there are things that you want to have yeah. that are precious to you. Yeah, the, that uh, I think is something we shouldn't do away with. Yeah, and uh, the idea that a personality of a place, mm -hmm. like a, st a video store or a movie or, theater, or, or, movie theater yeah. or a, a library, uh, like they each have their own unique thumbprint. Their curated selection, whether yeah. very carefully selected or just haphazardly selected, it's going to be unique to that place. I yeah. always felt that way about the horror sections in, in video stores. Oh yeah, because whatever fly-by-night horror label could get a hold of that local <laughs> video store chain uh, would, like, push whatever shit they had. And yeah. it was great. It, it was... Find all kinds of weird, bizarre oddities at whatever different yeah. movies. And it behooved uh, you to go to a different store stores, because yeah. they had different selections. Yeah. Have you ever heard of Truth or Dare? A deadly game. Uh, <laughs> it's the only available on Odyssey Video, only on, over wow. on a, a Ocean Park in Santa nice. Monica. Long since closed. Yeah. Anyway, we're rambling. We're now, rambling. It's fun, though. It's a fun conversation. Mm -hmm. Now I'm very wistful. <laughs> it's, uh, here's a letter from Sir Arcane. Hello, Ooh, Sir great Arcane. Name. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool, I wish to file a formal complaint, uh -oh. mainly against Bibbs. Shit. During your recent episode of Thank Godzilla, It's Friday, uh -huh. where you dissected King Kong versus Godzilla, you never once said a giant wolf man, <laughs> despite several opportunities to do so. Even after yeah. spending five minutes talking about Frankenstein versus the Wolfman. <laughs> I trust this will not happen again, or I shall be forced to write another email. Uh, even with this oversight, you guys are still two of my four favorite Los Angeles County-based queer movie review podcasters. Yes! With multiple, yes! Number four! Uh, Woohoo! With multiple when they say you're in the top four, you're number four. You never know. <laughs> that's, that's what that means. I'll take it, though. That's really great. There's a yeah, lot of great film critics in LA. Two of my four favorite Los Angeles County-based queer movie review podcasters with multiple podcasts on various topics. That sounded more complimentary in my head. Cinematically yours, <laughs> Sir Arcane. Uh, yeah. For those so, who, yeah, William, why I, didn't I you say the wolf man? Uh, when, back when we had our first podcast, uh, we had a conversation which I guess amused people uh, where we talked about the video game Rampage. And the video mm -hmm. game Rampage, for those who recall, they made a movie about it with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh was about uh, three giant monsters and you played one of the giant monsters and your goal was to destroy more property than the other two. Mm. And if you took damage, you ate a human being and it made you strong again. Yes. And the monsters were uh, a thinly veiled Godzilla knockoff. A thinly... Liz Lizzie. It doesn't matter. A thinly <laughs> veiled Godzilla knockoff. A thinly veiled King Kong knockoff. George. And instead of any of the real kaiju that existed that they could have knocked off, could have been a giant turtle, could have been a giant moth, could have been anything, they chose the one thing that there actually hasn't been. Mm. A giant wolfman? A giant wolfman. <laughs> and I happen to say, a giant wolfman? 
Just like that, multiple times, because it was kind of a funny way to say, a giant wolf man? It, it, and people keep requesting it. It's like the it's the weirdest <laughs> thing. People well, that was like a decade ago. Me, people uh, asked me to say this. It's so weird. Well, it I should write a script. You uh, you started saying that at a time during uh, internet criticism, mm. when uh, a, a very particular type of uh, I, I like to call it comedy criticism uh, yeah. was on the rise, mm. and this idea of creating your own like niche and collection of personalities and catchphrases yeah. was really hip at the time. Yeah, um, I guess so. And, uh, I wasn't even and, trying. And, and when I say comedy criticism, I mean not criticism of comedy. I mean... No, like the, the criticism uh, using, itself is presented in a humorous way. Using the language of film criticism as a comedic bit. Like, that's yeah. that's your your stand-up is that... Your, your stand-up persona mm. is that of a film critic and who is constantly outraged by what they say. I think it's interesting that so much of that... There's a few, still a few people doing that, but it's, so it's much really of that... Fun. Out of favor so now, much of that yeah. has become just like serious video film criticism. Mm. Like, there's a lot of wonderful video essays for people like Jesse Gender or yeah. Lady Night the Brave or Aranoc or, or uh, mm. I, I watch a ton of people, yeah, but the, the, those um, are like children of that phenomenon. Like, it yeah, started, kinda, yeah. started out as kind of a joke, but then yeah. people just started doing it legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you and I. We're never quite part of that because we never really did like scripted bits yeah, about yeah. that or anything. But we always wanted to appeal to that a little bit because we love film criticism. We love taking it seriously and we love really getting to the nitty gritty and the details of, of movies. We do whole hour long conversations about weird movies that no one else cares about sometimes. But we want the conversation to be fun. We joke mm. around with each other like we do in real life. This yeah. isn't like a bit that we do. We, we, digress because in real life we digress and we want to make I want to make you laugh because it, it amuses me when you do like if I say the word lunchable oh god <laughs> lunchable is is like it's it's like the word chicken like there's just something inherently funny about it Whitney isn't convinced that the word lunchable <laughs> lunchable is the fun, is the funniest word in English language it's, it's, because it makes you wonder about a, a food product's like lunchability the, yeah, like what 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 sort of quality does this food have? Is it lunchable enough? And the no, thing this, is, is that the lunchables were like and no other and no other meal has that yeah. quality. It's something they don't ever call it something dinnerable. Yeah, it's true. Superable, <laughs> brunchable, Brunch, brunchable. Brunchable actually does roll off the tongue pretty good. I Brun, think brunchable, brunchable, should brunchable. Be brunchable should be fine. It's just a mimosa. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, I apologize for missing an opportunity to whip out my old catchphrase. <laughs> from, from 2011 yeah, like, or whenever you said it. It, w- it would be like uh, if uh, Dwayne Johnson played Sergeant Rock in a movie and there's mm. a scene in the movie where he's at a barbecue mm. and everyone's just sort of sniffing around like, hey, that smells really good. And then he doesn't say, can you smell what The Rock is cooking? Uh. Everyone would be like, well, that's kind of a missed opportunity. And Dwayne's just like, I'm trying to get away from that. <laughs> um one in one of the Expendables movies. Those movies are terrible. Those Expendables movies, mm. th- they exist for their gimmick, which is the cast. Sure, uh, but I remember there was, there was a scene. Uh, it, they made that first one, and they clearly were like filming against blue screens, like the actors weren't in the room together. Uh, spe- oh, especially uh, when they had Bruce Willis, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. I don't think yeah. any of them were in the same room at the same time. No, they were cl- rather clearly uh, filmed separately. And even so in, in even the, in the Expendables three, when they had like a smaller cast, like it was uh, Ronda Rousey and yeah. like, but people who were like they were names, but they weren't huge. Uh, I interviewed the filmmaker, and he was like the final climax of that movie where everyone's fighting and killing at the same time 
no one shot at the same time. That is, uh, a, it's just like it was all editing. <laughs> it, was wow. a, it was a master. He's like the fact that it looks like people were in the same building at the same time is all on our editor and cinematographer because <laughs> no one's schedule synced up. That's wow. why they don't do those usually. Yeah, because people schedule the scheduling yeah, is a nightmare. Um, I, I remember for the Expendables two though, people, mm. they responded to that criticism. So yeah. they're, they're, it's like, okay, we're gonna have line them up clearly all in the same shot. Yeah. We're gonna like keep them in the camera and the shot. It's together. like a visual yeah. effect. Yeah, we're gonna have Arnold Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis next to each other. You got and it. Uh, they, of course, it's all nostalgia bait, so they wanted to have the catchphrases in there. Yeah. But to be clever, they gave Bruce Willis the Arnold Schwarzenegger catchphrase. Uh-huh. Like he said, Hostel of Vista Baby or something. Yeah. And then uh, I think it was Arnold Schwarzenegger said, Yippee Kaye. Cute. That's amusing. I'm fine terrible. with that. I'm totally fine with that. Again, those movies are terrible. They're pretty they're, bad. They're, they're the second idea. one is the best of them, though. It, I think it's, it's it, the high point, I it's, suppose. It's the cheesiest. You got Jean-Claude Van Damme as the villain. That's right. Yeah. I still maintain that the biggest missed opportunity in that series was not... Because the whole thing is you try to play into everyone's sort of pre-existing persona. Mm. One thing Jean-Claude Van Damme did multiple times, not just twice, many times, was play identical twins. So have a have, have, his, play twins. have his brother yeah. come back, either as a hero or getting revenge. In fact, I I once pitched an idea written like not literally, I wasn't in any studio, but like I was telling people this should be the next Expendables. Every actor whose character died in a previous movie, their identical Has twins twin. show up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they become the anti-expendables and they're trying to kill Switch Stallone's team. That is a great idea. And then at the end, when it's like, oh God, how are we going to defeat this unstoppable team of like the, the evil Stone Cold Steve Austin and the extra evil Jean-Claude Van Damme and the extra evil so and so forth. That's when you find out that Stallone and Statham and Lundgren and Randy Couture, they also have identical twins oh, and they become go. like a double expendables. People should yeah, pay that's, me money. That's that's a great idea. Sure. Here's a letter from Kevin. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. I've been catching up on thanks to God. This is Kevin speaking. I've been catching up on thinking yes. Godzilla. It's Friday. And I got excited when Bibbs started to ask about the nature of Willis O'Brien's pitch for King Kong versus Godzilla. And I became excited because I know a little bit about it. Ooh, uh, that's of, exciting. One of the books I used to check out from s- the school library was Donald F. Glutt's Classic Movie Monsters, a meticulously researched and indiv- invaluable book at the depictions of several classic monster icons from across film history. In his chapter on King Kong, Glutt talks about... That's G-L-U-T, Glutt, because mm-hmm. I, I see you're looking it up right I want to make sure... I think um, I might have read this book. I'm trying to look, Donald trying to look up the Glutt, cover. Donald uh, talks about Willis O'Brien's different pitches for other Kong movies that were never made. According to Glutt, O'Brien's King Kong versus Frankenstein would have had Carl Denham retrieving Kong, whose, quote, death would have been revealed as a cover-up, mm. to take part in a boxing match <laughs> against a new monster created by the grandson of Dr. Frankenstein called the Ginkgo. King Kong versus the Ginkgo was another working title for the nice. movie. Created by combining parts of various African animals such as rhinos and elephants and more into a giant bipedal monster. The two of them would have faced off in San Francisco before meeting their mutual end on, naturally, the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, O'Brien sold his pitch to a producer named John Beck, who then hired writer George Worthington Yates to punch up the story, renaming the Ginkgo Prometheus and cutting out Carl Denham. When Beck and Yates couldn't get funding for the movie from any American studios, they pitched it to Toho instead... 
and the rest is history. Yeah. I attached some of O'Brien's original concepts for The Ginkgo and found some online and others from Glut's book. I hope you found this as interesting as I did. Best wishes and rah! <laughs> Kevin. Um, yeah, then there's some included pictures. Here's a picture of The Ginkgo. It's this big leathery guy with like long arms. Oh yeah, and... big old dude, yeah. Mm. Uh, I have definitely read some of Donald F. Glutt's book. I'm not 100% sure if I read classic movie Monsters, but he did like a big a werewolf book. Yeah. When I was a kid, there was a, I went to the main branch of the Pasadena Public Library, which very frustratingly has not reopened since the pandemic started to ebb. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, we're still going through it, obviously, but like it, businesses started opening up. And it's my understanding that it needs like a retrofitting or something. The Pasadena Public Library is a beautiful ancient public library it's got like cool metal staircases that spiral and they're really thin and that this uh, uh the children's section was way up in the corner and it was really huge and they had a section in the kids section mm. that was dedicated to monsters and they had books about old monster movies they had books about werewolf legends and these were not like picture books they were actually like real books I mean, they weren't like these giant like Buffer the Vampire Slayer library tomes or anything like that, but they actually like were like actually about the real cultural phenomena or mythology of various creatures and cryptids. And I know they had some Donald uh, F. Glut books, mm-hmm. and yeah, those books were very formative for me. <laughs> That's where I learned about Bird Eye Gordon. That's where I yeah, learned about oh, you know oh, a lot of the Universal monster movies that I couldn't get a handle on. Like uh, 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 I didn't have access to, rather. Um, so yeah, kudos to the people who write those books, especially books that are accessible to younger people uh, and getting them excited about movie mm-hmm. history because those are a big deal. I was well, at I, th- um, I thought I'd seen it, but I was actually thinking of um, Jeff yeah. Roven's book, The Encyclopedia of Monsters. Oh, you have, you have that uh, up? Can I see uh, a picture of that? Uh, let's see if I can get a picture yeah. of the, um, the cover. Um, I forget if I mentioned this in another podcast, but I was at the Skirball Center, which is a wonderful mm-hmm. uh, museum here. The, the, uh, this guy. Yeah, I've seen that. That's yeah, a great one. Um, the Skirball Center is a... a, a wonderful museum and right now they have a a whole exhibit dedicated to the hollywood blacklist and uh, it's free on thursdays if you're in la you should totally go and and if you can afford to go on another day please do this obviously the center could use the money but um they had original uh like correspondence from like the hollywood 10 when they were in prison and were getting letters from their kids uh there were just a, a whole lot of wonderful things but uh, one of the things uh, that they had because uh dalton trumbo wrote roman holiday and uh, won an academy award which he wasn't allowed to hmm. actually accept um they had in the in the uh the gift shop which is my favorite part of any museum uh a storybook like a picture book beautifully painted that's roman holiday as if it was a kid's picture book yeah, yeah, it's charming. <laughs> it's so cute. I wish I knew someone with like because your your son's a little too old for that like reading level. So yeah, like he's, he's eight already. He's eight. He's, like he's, he's reading real dull. It's perfect point, yeah. for like a five year old or like a sixth grader or a six year old. But um, yeah, your 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 son's a little old for it. I wish I had a kid to give that to because it was so great. I would have loved it when I was that age. Anyway, um, but thank you for writing in. Thank okay. you. Uh, here's a letter from Moses. Hi, Moses. Uh, <laughs> You're laughing the, uh, already. The subject line is 
The gobbledygooker. That just says, Dear Bibbs, mm-hmm. I got it. Thank you. I didn't want it, but I got it. Let us never speak of this again. Signed, Moses. It's the whole letter. Um, you made... We were talking about Mothra versus Godzilla. Yeah, so there was a big plot point a, of that movie about a giant Mothra egg. Giant Mothra egg. That's used as like an amusement small, park like. attraction. And you made a, a, a very oblique reference that I thought was just a stupid joke because I didn't get the reference mm-hmm. uh, to something called the gobbledygooker. Yes. Uh, which was, I had to look it up. You did uh, not believe me. I didn't believe you. You said, yeah. and the gobbledygooker comes out. And I was like, you just made up a word. That's not funny. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, it was a thing. Yeah. It's consider it's it's like the quibby of the wrestling world. Yeah, like it's, it's one of the most this embarrassing embar- embarrassment from the, the WWF. Yeah. Where uh, yeah, they had this egg in that they brought out into the wrestling ring. And it says, Giant Some, egg. Something's gonna come out of this egg, and everybody's like, "Ooh, it was, it's gonna be a new character." And it was like a Thanksgiving yeah. event, and they thought it was gonna be a big fucking deal. Some huge plot mm-hmm. point is something's and, uh, gonna happen that's gonna be worth the wait. And then uh, the egg cracked open this giant uh-huh. human-sized egg and out stepped the new character and it wasn't some like you know super badass being born of an egg no, it was like a godzilla wrestler oh no. like, very terrifying it, it was a, a turkey man it was a guy, guy in a guy in a turkey costume yeah. full body turkey costume with a big yeah. plush head with big cartoon eyeballs yeah. on it looks like he's like the kind of guy they like have out in front of like a used car lot for thanksgiving yeah. day specials you're like, come on Look, in! Re- wrestling was already, like, absurd, and I think yeah. that was one took over the line for some people. I think everyone was like, you the know... The gooker was we, not, not well regarded. We don't, we don't actually want to go this far. Yeah. You kind of... You kind of... It, it, it's just like when we went from, like, Batman Forever, everyone's like, that's a sweet spot, that's just as campy as we want it, and then they went to Batman and Robin, and everyone's like, scale it the fuck back. <laughs> and that was the gobbledygooker. Anyway, thank you for remembering it. I I had to be I my partner M. Lopez da Silva was the one who introduced me to the concept of the gobbledygooker, and we did the deep dive and everything. So I can't pretend that that's all me. So just mm-hmm. for the record, um, here's a letter. For, so yeah, that that was that was the gobbledygooker. Yes. Moses remembers the gobbledygooker. I'm glad someone does. Uh, here's a letter from Tom with three exclamation points. Oh shit! Hello, Tom. Hi, Tom. Um, Sorry. Hi, Tom. Tom. Uh, hello to my favorite critics. Yes, that means you too. Oh, oh you're nice. Ish. Um, I was recently having a discussion with a friend about a movie we both watched. He didn't like it, and I did. Hmm. When discussing our reasoning, he said something along the lines of, there was no character development for the protagonist. And that mm. got me uh, thinking, did the film need to have it? this development mm. not all movies need to operate the same way not every filmmaker writer director has an interest in the development of a character or sticking to a conventional storytelling method so why should we judge a fame based on these things i watched the movie and didn't really see any need for the film to explore this sort of development not all stories need to have this right my question is should we judge all films based on the same story criteria even if we think uh, even if we don't think it should be applied I'm not talking about experimental or more avant-garde pieces of cinema here either, as obviously those all don't always follow the same kind of basic storytelling functions on purpose. Right. I'm just talking about, most, for lack of a better term, regular movies mainstream. that one can watch at your local uh, multiplex any time of the day. And at the end of the day, I know film criticism like this is subjective. I thought it was an interesting talking point for you both. I hope you're both well. Keep up the great work. Your biggest Welsh fan, Tom. Tom! I would love to know what movie you were talking about because I'm curious what the context is. Because I'm sure you and I both agree on this. Uh, The answer to whether we should judge all films by the same criteria is no. No, you... The, your job as a critic is to go into a movie and try to surmise what the film was trying to do on its own, 
by its own motivate own locomotion. Yeah, what's like, the what film was... attempting to achieve? And then you ask yourself, is it a good version of that? Yeah, did, did yeah. it? What did it set out to achieve, and did it do it well? And now, some sometimes, movies are uh, very are trying to follow a formula. Yeah, some movies um, are trying to subvert it. Uh, a, a lot of a lot of sort of mainstream cinema is just sort yeah. of re- repeating something to, to make rom rom com same uh, movie yeah. over and over again slashers same, same movie, movie over and over, over again, again yeah. the, the the variations are what makes it fun but mostly they're following a template yeah and when it comes to phrases like character development um that's that well it's a screenwriting textbook phrase isn't it is it? um the idea it's, that, it's also an English class phrase yeah, um although when it comes to uh, story when it comes to telling a story which you know the, mm melodramatic story and that's that's a lot of fictional scripted films Mm -hmm. um there has to be to put it in the most basic terms possible a change of something something needs to change by the end of the movie otherwise Um, why did we watch that uh, no one went through anything significant interesting i've heard it put this way before the phrase this i believe isn't a story that's like a treatise. That's that's just yeah. a statement of fact. That's static. That's just, yeah. here's what I believe. Whereas, nothing has changed. Nothing has altered. Nothing has evolved. Whereas, this I used to believe is a story. Yeah. Something has implies, changed. I, I, yeah. some, I used to momentum. believe something and now I do not any longer. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that's not necessarily the same as character development. No. Um, the idea that uh, a lot of movies start with a character who is kind of downtrodden, maybe a little mm. bit uh, down on their luck. Uh, they have a problem. There's, they, a, there's, there's, yeah, a, there's, there's something there's, in their life that's keeping them life. from being happy. And, and by the end of the film, they've achieved something. They've grown yeah. as a character. They've they've developed self-confidence. Uh, they yeah. have found their passion in life. Mm. They've fallen in love where they were lonely yeah, before. And, uh, something about them has altered dramatically. Yeah. And, and when it comes to these kinds of like character templates, every Everybody likes to go to Star Wars or or the Wizard of Oz. Those are yeah, like two, are, of, two of the prime examples. Yeah. Uh, Luke Skywalker. You could set your watch starts, to those uh, movies and their structure. Yeah, yeah. Starts off as, you know, just some bratty kid hating his life on a desert world somewhere. Mm-hmm. And by the end, he's blowing up an evil empire's death machine in a spaceship. Thanks you know? to the religion that he's found. That's, yeah, and he's found religion. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, the a lot religion. of change. A lot of change. Yeah, so, so the character changed a lot by the end of the movie. Um, yeah. Dorothy, at the beginning mm. of The Wizard of Oz, wants to leave her farm. She doesn't like it here anymore. Yeah. And then she goes somewhere and she realizes that after all of her adventure and after everything that she's went through, she does love her family and she does miss home and she wishes she was there again. Yeah. So although she ends up back where she started, she has changed. Her perspective has changed. Mm. Now... The idea that every protagonist needs to go through this change is more of a generality. Generally, it's pretty common for a protagonist to go through a significant change by the end of the film. They're cynical and then they're optimistic. They don't care about anybody. Now they care about somebody. They're lonely now that they have somebody, etc. There are, however, notable exceptions to this. And it's particularly uh, uh, true in serialized entertainment. Where you have a character like, I don't know, Batman or Sherlock Holmes or Ethan Hunt, where they actually remain relatively static in most of their narratives. Mm. The difference is that they're changing people and events around them. So you look at a movie like Rogue uh, Nation, for example, mm. Ethan Hunt doesn't change. Ilsa Faust does. Well, when it comes to characters like Batman or... or, um, you know, Ethan Hunt, those characters actually do change. Well, Not significantly, 
But the idea is they've started out in sort of a steely place and then mm. they've eventually reached a point where they care about somebody else. Well, I'm not talking about... that's not going to be such a dramatic change because that's be status quo for the sequels. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be such a dramatic change that it's going to affect later installments. Well, this is... They're going I... to grow in very small ways. If yeah. they go through that little tiny change, it's going to be satisfying dramatically. I, I agree with uh, that. I do, however, what I'm thinking of is more along the lines of something like the Adam West Batman. Mm. who, in any particular two-part episode of the Adam oh, West yeah. Batman, he, he, doesn't really learn anything. He's static. He's, he's, he's yeah, People he's change fully, around him. And there's something to be said for characters who enter movies fully formed. I actually yeah. kind of like those characters. Yeah. Uh, as of this recording, we just lost the wonderful comedian Paul Rubens. Yes. Uh, he passed away today. And... Uh, or he passed away yesterday. Passed yeah. away yesterday. Yeah. Um, uh, we just a, learned about age, it Age 70, he died of cancer. Yeah. And, uh, Pee-wee Herman, his most famous creation... Mm-hmm doesn't change not really no because he he treats Dottie less like a jerk by he, the end of the movie yeah he, he treats her more like a girlfriend at the mm-hmm. end but like that's basically he's, it he's he, the same guy throughout he, the whole he movie en- he enters the film com- you know, Pee Wee Herman already mm-hmm. where did he come from it doesn't matter yeah. we're actually drawn to the sort of man child the way yeah. he's presented to us the movie is about how other people react to Pee Wee yeah. and how he changes them through those interactions yeah. uh, it's the, almost a religious screed well the, speaking of religious screeds the, uh, the, yeah. the prime example I like to give is Going My Way the, the ah, 1944 movie um, uh, the Bing Crosby character is He's the protagonist of the movie, mm. but he's already fully formed when he enters into the movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I started, I tried to coin the phrase the benevolent helper genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pee Wee is another one. These characters come into the yeah. movie not there to change. They're there to change others. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, was it Barry Fitzgerald? Yeah, Barry Fitzgerald. Uh, Barry Fitzgerald is kind of the main character of that movie because he's the one who has to change. Mm-hmm. He's the one who needs to have his mind changed and become a little bit more gentle and not this mm-hmm. bitter curmudgeon that he's at the beginning of the movie. The terminology gets confusing here because sometimes the main character isn't the protagonist or mm-hmm. vice versa. Uh, some would argue that the protagonist is the character who changed. I, no. I interviewed um, Pete Docter. Uh, uh, for the movie Inside Out. And we talked about how, I, I said, I have a theory that in this movie, even though Joy is the main character, uh, Sadness mm. is really more of the protagonist. The word I meant to use was hero. Oh. Because in that movie, Joy is trying to prevent Sadness from having an influence on the little girl whose brain they live inside. Yeah. Because she doesn't want her to be sad. She thinks Sadness is bad. Joy is better. Mm. And she doesn't realize that Sadness brings joy. Like, you well, need... It's, it's just a vital part of the human experience. Yeah, we and... need to be able to express this, because if we don't, we suppress it, and it's bad. It's a very mature film in a lot of ways. But my argument was, Sadness was doing the right thing all along. Mm. Sadness is... You know, kind of the hero, and I, well, I use the word protagonist. Be doctor, correct me. It's like sadness doesn't change; joy does. Yeah, yeah. So, some would argue that protagonist is the character who changes, but I would argue that there are definitely stories that blur that line, where yeah. there's oh, definitely, definitely a yeah. main character hmm. who doesn't change. And, uh, I heard a, I've heard a criticism of um, the 1989 animated uh, version of The Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at the mermaid herself, mm-hmm. she doesn't really learn a lesson in that movie. No, she, she was right all along. That's she, the point she, of the movie. She was in love with the, uh, the human up on mm-hmm. on dry land. She thought humans were good she, when yeah. her father didn't. Uh, her father she, is the one who learns. In, in, yeah, in this act of teen rebellion, she goes mm-hmm. to the sea witch, she goes you know, up to land, she makes this deal. Mm-hmm. She's not really, she's struggling, but she's struggling towards something she wants. Mm-hmm. She does it by sort of shady means, but she's doing it. And um, 
it's not until the end of the movie when her father, who mm. was the one who was laying down the law and saying you can't talk to humans, learns to accept that she's in love with a human mm-hmm. and learns to actually magically transforms her into a human. Yeah. So she can be with the man she loves. These are characters. He, yeah, he's the one who acts like makes the change and makes the big decision. These are characters who don't necessarily change, but change the world around them. Mm. Mulan. Mulan is herself. Yeah. Uh, throughout that movie, people eventually come to accept Mulan. Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins is just Mary Poppins. You could argue that she's more attached to the kids than she thought she'd be at the end, but she's still basically the same person. It's Mr. Banks who changes. And yeah. Mr. Banks, arguably, is more of the antagonist. Mm. Like, the, the, these, a lot of the rules, I'm just going to sum it up here, a lot of the rules that we have for narrative storytelling are just sort of generalities where you need to know if you're teaching someone how to tell a story, how to write a screenplay, you need people to understand that this is how it generally works because how it generally works is what people generally expect. And you need to be able to either reproduce that or if you subvert it, know how you're subverting it and what effect that will have so you can do it well. Hmm. Every single rule of art exists to be broken but you can't break it unless you know it's a rule to begin with and why that rule exists otherwise you're just fucking around yeah the uh so to answer to go back to the letter to answer a question the idea of judging a film based on a cleaving to a very uh Mm. set you know and adhering to these guidelines standards yeah these standards of 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 art and the way Mm. films ought to be constructed that's you know a, a good way to begin yeah. criticizing movies. That's the, the the first day of your first class in college when it comes yeah. to criticizing movies. Uh, because that's when you're kind of laying out and figuring out what the rules are. Yeah. Uh, mo- a lot of movies are going to operate the same, especially just going to the multiplex and there's yeah. this big sort of studio commercial slop. I mean, a yeah. lot of it, not a lot of thought goes into a lot of these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, or too much thought goes into the wrong parts anyway. Uh, right. Uh you're going to encounter all kinds of movies in your life, uh, and you're going to encounter different way, different kinds of characters and different ways of seeing and different tones and different moods, uh, different ways of telling stories. Uh, and if you're hellbent on judging a film by a very specific first day of film school guidelines, mm-hmm. you're not going to understand these movies. No. They're going to start to escape you after a while. Movies so, are trying uh, to present you with new ideas, yeah, new tales, new personalities, mm. new people telling them. And if you are closed off to that mm. because you think in order for a movie, in order for a horror movie to be good, it has to have this many kills. In order for, mm. you need to be able to adjust and think about the effect a movie is having and be open to that effect, even if it's not something you expected. The one thing I will say is that there's a, there's a converse of this. There's a, there's another side to this, which is fair, but not really conducive to conversation, mm. uh, which is it's okay to have your own sense of taste. Absolutely. It's okay to just like what you like. No one's forcing you to like anything you don't like. But if we're going to have a conversation about the same piece of art that we just had and why we liked it, to simply be shut off and say, I don't like it because any movie that does this is bad, you can't have a conversation. Mm. Your conversation is going to be very one-sided or uh, very short. And so if you want to have a conversation about this, and especially if you want to be a film critic or a writer or a director, anyone in the industry, you need to understand how a wide variety of stories and storytelling styles operate. Mm. 
because there are rules and they're all wrong even <laughs> though they're all correct yeah. it just depends on the context of how they are applied anyway uh here's a letter from j-lo Hey, J-Lo. No, and it's, it's J-Lo, no, not that one. Yes, I know. We've had J-Lo before. Yeah, J-Lo's written in It'd be great if the um, actual J-Lo like, wrote in and was like, yes, that one. <laughs> oh, hello, Jennifer Lopez. Yes. Uh, I, lo- I love that movie, The Cell. Um, I also love The Cell. Cell's very good. It's a very uh, good film. Uh, gents, uh, in We've Got Mail 156, you asked listeners to reply with theaters worth traveling to across the country. This is We already uh, had a bit of a topic on this, yeah. Um, nestled away in Layington, Pennsylvania, Ooh. on the age of the Poconos. Pocanos? Pocanos? Uh, I actually I have to look at the spelling. A mere two-hour drive from New York City, most of New Jersey, and Philadelphia is the Mahoning Drive-In Theater. Mm. The Mahoning has been open every season since 1949. Nice. It's home to the second largest cinemascope screen on the East Coast, and the only drive-in left projecting 35mm film. In the, mid wow. in the mid-2010s, when studios stopped striking film prints and switched to digital, the Mahoning pivoted to being a repertory theater running different theme nights, full weekend-long oh. festivals all season long. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Uh, every year they open with a double feature of The Wizard of Oz and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Wow. They That's host, a great double feature. They host annual events such as Zombie Fest, Dead Heat fucking rules by the Oh, have you Ooh, seen Dead Heat? You know, with, I've actually never seen Williams. all of Dead Heat. Oh, I gosh. Need, I've been meaning to just sit down with it, but I've, I don't have, like, an afternoon okay. to do it. But I've... They, they have, like, a widget that can, sac- can resurrect the dead. Yeah. And that's how zombies come to be. And uh, sure. Treat Williams plays a cop who dies, and he's resurrected, but he only has, like, 48 hours before he dies again. Yeah. And he has to solve, like, the mystery his, who killed his him. His own murder. While yeah. he's rotting, like, Great very quickly. Yeah. Wonderful premise. Vincent Price um, is in it. Joe Piscopo is in it. Joe Piscopo is the Hell yeah, of a... Is, is, like, the funny sidekick cop yeah, character. Hell of a premise. It they, sounds exactly like a movie I They love. bring the zombie widget. I'm not going to describe the scheme to you. I'm just going to say the premise. They bring the zombie widget, the thing that uh, sacrifices dead flesh, uh, into a butcher shop. <laughs> oh, good for them. See, and, that's taking and so, an idea and, so, and, ex- yeah. and going, okay, we and have they, an idea. They, so they get a little clever with it. What's everything we can it, yeah. do with it? Oh, I love that. That's great writing. So, yeah. yeah, so they get a little clever with it. Dead heat yeah. is great. Make the yeah. most of your concept. Think mm. about everything that could happen and do it. <laughs> uh, they also have VHS Fest, Godzilla Fest, and Camp Blood. Ooh. And they host themed Nights, such as the upcoming David Lynch weekend, John nice. Waters weekend, which John Waters is a guest, and Carl Gottlieb night, a double feature of Jaws and the Jerk. Wow, uh, that's a that's <laughs> awesome. That's a great. I love that double feature. That's amazing. Uh, Mahoning is a great retreat movie uh, for movie fans of all ages, and if you're already on the East Coast, a place worth traveling to. I'll be heading up this weekend for the uh, Agfa Triple Ripper Two. Oh god, Agfa, the American Genre Film Association. Oh okay. Um, Triple Ripper, uh, which opens with a short segment from the Shaw Brothers anthology Haunted Tales, nice. then features an animal cruelty-free version of Red Spells, Red Spell Spells Red, where a documentary filmmakers accidentally release a demon, Devil Fetus, do I need to explain that one, and it will finish with The Magic BMX, a Taiwanese E.T. ripoff that Agfa says is ultra-rare. <laughs> nice! Oh, I gotta see The Magic BMX. I wanna see The Magic yeah. BMX, it sounds amazing. Uh, best, J-Lo. Thank you, I'm, I'd never heard of that theater. Oh. And now I really wanna go. Yeah, I really man. wanna go. Oh man, that sounds like a great experience. It reminds me of a theater we had in Pasadena called The State, uh, 
The, st- the state was kind of off to the side. There were a ton of movie theaters in, in Pasadena, and the state was off in its own little uh, corner. But it was, for a while, the longest continuously operating movie theater in America. It had not shut its doors or changed or, or changed businesses or whatever since, like, 1921. It had been a silent movie theater, and it had been showing movies the entire time. In the 70s, it pivoted to porn, then it came back again, mm-hmm. and then uh, it went under new management like a year or so before I graduated from high school. And they started doing midnight movies, and they did drag shows. Uh, it was awesome! They would bring like a hearse by... <laughs> like it was the, the sword swallowers they were great and the only reason they had to shut down was because they couldn't afford to get the place earthquake retrofitted under the new standards oh that's too bad so and i get it but also damn it that sucks and nowadays we totally have like an online petition people trying to donate money to try to save the state i would have loved it because that place was amazing and then it remained closed but nothing moved in it was a lifeless husk Aww. For years, and then right next to it was one of the best uh, uh, newsstands I've ever been to in my life, Bungalow News. They also had to shut down. Also, just left, just left there. Nothing was in there for years. You could have at least had it around until you found a new rental, right? Now it's now one of them. I think is a uh, is a hair salon, and another one is a subway. Uh, not not like a useful like public transit subway, but like a shitty sandwich subway. Uh, oh, that kills me. It makes me sad. Um, I uh, I'm very fond of a pair of books uh, written by Daniel Pinkwater. You've mentioned these. And, a lot. Uh, yeah, I've mentioned um, the Snark Out Boys and the Avocado of Death. In fact, it was something I mailed out to some of our subscribers at one point. Wonderful book, young adult book. You know, it's you know, it takes you three hours to read it. Yeah, um, and it's about uh, these. Teenage boys who invent a sport that they call snarking hour. They sneak out of the house in the middle of the night and go to the 24-hour movie theater. That's called yeah. the Snark Theater, which is based on the Clark Theater, which is in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, in the sequel, the Snark Out Boys in the Baconberg Horror, <laughs> they go to a place called I think it's called the Garden of the Garden of Earthly Bliss Drive-in and Pizzeria. Oh, and oh, I love that already. Yeah, like just the oh, phrase, oh, like it gets you salivating. Oh and the idea God. is they, they I'm imagining uh, these like stretchy, cheesy pizzas of pizza. You oh, know, yeah. like you know, like in cartoons, like a goofy movie mm. or uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven. Pizza looks like the most delicious thing ever because it's just this it's like, gooey, it's like, cheesy, like amazing, practically liquid. Yeah. Oh. Bless and it. and uh, the description was this wonderful, uh, like, you know, the, the wonderful screens and they have the best films and they have this fully functioning kitchen. And the part I liked best was you can order a pizza, um, like, from your speaker that you hang over your uh, your car window. Yeah. You push a button, you said pizza, and you can, like, sort of select the toppings from this little panel of buttons. Oh, nice. And the, and the book was written in, like, 1984. So, oh, it's so that's like, like, a, that's like fantasy, right? So, yeah, there. it's like this weird fantasy technology. You get to order these pizzas. And that's and just a Sonic now. And there's little, like, train tracks all over the drive in where oh. little ro- pizza robots kind of roll around and deliver the pizza directly into your car window. It's like, I want to go there. I want to go there. If, if, if I I'm, die, that's yes, where I'll if go. If I'm very good, I'll die. <laughs> 
that's where I go when I when I die. It's gonna be the Garden of Earthly Bliss, driving in pizzeria from Sounds the Snark Out Boys and the Bacon Burger. Awesome. Well, listen, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, everybody who wrote in. We're sorry if we didn't get to your email. Uh, we will be back. Mm-hmm. Um, as you may have noticed, uh, this week's episode was preempted a bit uh, because uh, we did a special episode of Cancel Too Soon. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, this episode will go live on the Patreon a little early, and then we'll release this uh, properly over the weekend to give everyone time to listen to everything. Um, but seriously, it warms our hearts to hear from you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so we, we, we're... So much of what we do is very isolated. And it's just nice to know that we're not speaking into a void. Yeah, and that yeah. you not only listen, but that you're interested. Even when we fuck up and you take us to task. Just it means a lot that you would care. So, so thank you. So before we go, you gotta say it. Say what? A giant wolf man? That's the one. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, if you want to write in, you want to have your uh, email or letter read on a future episode, it's very easy. Your email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, if you want to listen to some of the shows we referenced uh, in this episode that aren't on our main feed like only the best where we review every single best picture nominee ever uh or star trek we do uh, a show where we review every star trek ever uh we have episodes of thank godzilla it's friday one week early you can head on over to our patreon that's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network uh you can vote for future episodes you get ad free episodes of our main shows uh you can leave comments we do discord hangouts sometimes it's a lot of fun uh, so thank you to all of our patrons without whom the show would not exist. Uh, we're also on social media. I'm at William Bibiani pretty I'm, much everywhere. I'm at Whitney Seibold on, on the socials. Uh, and le- the show... Le- le- less on Twitter these days. Yeah, I'm trying, and it's it's not very good anymore. <laughs> uh, and uh, But the show is on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. Uh, it has its own dedicated feed, so we might uh, have the occasional announcement or fun thing over there, too. So, um, yeah. Thank you, for everybody. Once again, have a wonderful week, weekend, life. And, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Whitney.